I'll tell you a, a, a quick story. It's a little humorous, but I was in a police academy and we're at the, the shooting range and the guy next to me, uh, I don't want to give his name up, <laughs> but anyway, I'm firing, you know, from the 60 yard line or whatever it is, 60 foot line. And uh, I noticed a lot of holes in my, uh, <laughs> a lot of holes in my, uh, <laughs> my target. And, you know, I only fired X amount of shots. So as I approach it, I have twice as many holes as everybody else. And the guy next to me, he's got no holes in his. <laughs> so now I'm thinking, I'm thinking, is he, is he fooling around with me? Or, uh, he was is he just, that bad a shot? <laughs> he was shooting at the wrong target. Yeah. So six months later, I'm rolling on the ground. And I call an 85 fourth width, which is, you need help. I'm rolling on the ground with a perk. And this cop exits out of the radio car. He's got his gun in his hand. And I'm rolling the ground. And I'm saying, don't shoot. Don't shoot. <laughs> <laughs> it was him. <laughs> it was him. Yeah, yeah. So, You know, one of the things, um, and we use the term anti-crime. A lot of people don't know what that really means. And it used to be, up until very recently, that every precinct had an anti-crime unit. And usually they had two teams and one would work uh, 10 to 6s, one would work 6 to 2s, and they'd go alternate and they'd have, you know, one would have Friday, Saturday, one would have Sunday, Monday off. And anti-crime was is invaluable to a precinct commander because they uh, make the most, probably the most difficult robbery arrest to take the guns off the street. And they have that stealthiness and they have... Uh, they work in plain clothes and unmarked cars. So they have 15 to 20 seconds of anonymity on the street, which is all you need to jump out on somebody and to surprise the criminal element. But now without anti-crime, and I know the department's answer to that is to put uh, uniform cops in unmarked cars, still not the same thing. What are, you, what are your feelings about this? Well, I'll be honest with you. My entire career, the best collars I ever made was in the uh, 718 anti-crime unit. Um, you, you, you're driving around, and, and not only unmarked cars, but a lot of, oftentimes we had uh, non-police department type vehicles. We had Chevrolet, uh, small cars, we had different types of cars. Because, he, you know, a trained perp knows how to identify cars coming down a block, if they're mm. five or if they're police, or if not. So uh, that extra time that you alluded to, it's so important because uh, oftentimes you have a description, uh, but even if you don't have a description and you're just like looking for uh, to keep the city, the streets safe, that extra time is invaluable because they react to you. Right. Once they realize you're, you're the police, they, they react to you. And it could be just tossing a gun. It could be running. It could be, you know, looking at their watch. It could be stopping and going back home. Or, so, uh, and a trained cop, a seasoned cop, develops the, the, the instinct to, to, to notice what's going on. And then you can you, stop and you have, the, you have the time to observe, to watch. Exactly. To watch things that you can, you can read things, just like a doctor can diagnose things. Exactly right. Before they happen, because you have that time. You're not responding to the radio, not a slave to the radio. You have time to observe. And that's one of the reasons, too, that anti-crime is so invaluable. You know, for young officers out there who, who might be uh, watching this, when we went anti-crime, we had a, uh, we would stick a, a like a suction cup thing onto the windshield of our car. And there was a, um, we had like a, a pamphlet, you know, a, a folder. And we would write down descriptions, not just for that day. 
we would write the descriptions and maintain it day to day to day. Because just like you and I, I wear the same overcoat when I go out. I, I wear the same hat if I go out. The perps do. Right. So if you're in a certain area, we would put, you know, northeast corner of the precinct, you know, blue coat, red coat, armed robbery. So you're, you're, you're educating yourself, the environment that you're working in. Plus, you also present in a better case if you do make a gun collar uh, down at the DA, DA's office. You know, two days ago, we had a, a robbery team that fit the description in that area. And we were questioning them and, you know, the guy ran or whatever, you know, and threw the gun. So there's ways of developing stronger cases in court. Uh, you know, you don't want to make an arrest and, 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 and have it thrown out all the time. You know, sometimes they get thrown out. If they get thrown out, you did your best. Right. You know, you, you always uh, don't fabricate, don't make up stories. But if you have documentation, uh, either prior to that arrest or statements that the individuals made or witnesses made, document everything that you can. Because it's very important later on when you're in trial, a year later. Well, it's yeah. even like a, a really good, good anti-crime cop will always read the 60 sheet before he goes out to see exactly. what happened on the previous tour, you know, who... Are we looking for who's doing the stickups, uh, who's doing the burglaries, you know, possibly descriptions of burglars, rapists, all of that type of thing. And also, when you do stop someone, even regarding maybe a stop, question, and frisk, that you can articulate, well, he fit the description of so-and-so, of this, and that's why I stopped him, you know. Exactly. And now you can articulate, you can bring that evidence into court. You know, the 61 of the robbery two days before or the day before or that early in that tour. And now you have... Confirm corroborating evidence about uh, the arrest that you made. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, something. I hope that that's still being taught, you know, young cops uh, about how, why and how we stop people, you know, based on having the knowledge of what's going on in your precinct. You know, I saw something recently. You know, I'm out of job a couple of years now. Uh, you know, we used to have the memo book and the actual summonses were on paper and we would write on the back of the summons, you know, the, the right. additional information. Now, I, I, from what I understand, like there's no memo books in the NYPD anymore. Like they do it all on the on a, on a the, the tab. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's important for these officers to document everything on that laptop or iPad, whatever it is. Right. Document that information because you're going to court on this, you know, one day. And uh, the better prepared you are, it's better for everybody. Absolutely, and also it makes you look like a, a professional. Which exactly. Is what you want to look like? You don't want to look like a boob on the stand, you know, that just. Uh, is making arrests without you know knowledge and without knowledge of the law, knowledge of tactics, knowledge of what the hell's going on, you know. You know, these district attorneys, uh, they depend on your testimony to to get a conviction. You know, and if you lose a case, you can't blame them all the time. You, you, you maybe look right. in the mirror and, and blame yourself. Uh, so you have to have credibility with them. If if you tell them you're going to do something like you, like a detective, you, oh, I'm going to go interview so and so to firm it up or whatever do it right. you know, don't tell the da that you're going to do something and don't follow up on it because they don't want to work they, they don't want to deal with you next time you come no. through that door with a call you know you have to build the reputation build the credibility and um establish establish uh, a, a positive reputation you know? absolutely do you want to talk about the i know you caught a um a serial rapist uh while you were in anti-crime which was uh, i think it was called the flatbush rapist yeah, so what happens is it, it, it was really two worlds coming together 
three worlds actually coming together. So uh, crack was just developing uh, in the streets of Brooklyn. It was 1984. And uh, prior to that, whenever you made a, a, a cocaine arrest, it was always an aluminum foil that was powder. But now we start making collars and uh, we're seeing these little crack rails with little stones, little pebbles, little rocks in them. And that was the crack and they would smoke it instead of sniffing it, which was uh, prior. Uh, very lucrative for the drug dealers. So as it spread and it became more prevalent, uh, they started uh, opening up these crack houses. So the first one that we had in the 7-1 was 250 Crown Street, which was a six-story apartment building on Crown Street and Dearborn Court. And we're driving by, Bill, there were 100, 150 people waiting online to get into the crack house. I'm not around the corner. So we said, we think it was legal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were trying to figure out what's going on. And then once we realized what was going on, then we started, you know, uh, notifying narcotics and the vice and, and making gun, gun arrests. So the prison commander, uh, Ray Cole at the time, put out a 49, which is just a, a, an information report to give special attention to 250 Crown Street uh, because of the narcotic activity. And when you have narcotic activity like that, the surrounding area gets negatively impacted by the robberies, right. the, the car break-ins, the shootings, and so forth. And especially so, at that point, crack was a new drug that then the high was didn't last very long. Exactly. They, so, they need more. They need right. more. So and, uh, the, the user needed to break into a car, needed to rob someone, needed to do a burglary to get more crack. Exactly. So uh, so we go by the 250 Crown Street the night after uh, Inspector Cole spoke to us. And uh, in front of Crown Street, there was a Lincoln Continental. And there was this big burly guy um, exiting the car. And he, we got out to inquire, what, you know, why is this guy double parked in front of the crack house? And he sees us and he made a move, he throws a gun. Uh, onto the front seat of the car. So we grab him, we apprehend him. It was uh, me, Dennis, Dennis Schwab, and John McCauley that made this arrest. And he had a, another guy in the car, Ricky Settles. So um, we processed you the arrest. You have a pretty damn good memory, huh? Certain cases. <laughs> certain cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, certain cases, I don't remember anything. Yeah. But uh, so uh, we make the arrest. And uh, like three days later, I'm down at the grand jury testifying before the grand jury to get an indictment and I finished testifying and I'm going to sign out of the police room where we had to sign in and there's a phone call for me and what it was it was the special victims uh sergeant sergeant and he tells me hey listen uh did you indict that guy Gregory Powell I said yeah I just well I just testified I, I don't know if they voted or not yet but I just testified he says make sure you get that indictment you tell the district attorney don't let him go under any circumstances his fingerprint that they, uh, when we took took his fingerprints at the arrest, just matched a crime scene of the flappish rapist. So the flappish rapist, yeah. So the flappish rapist at that time, uh, he, he raped about twelve people. They charged him with seven rapes of women. And what he would do, he would prey on women coming home from work, and uh, he would drag them that into an alleyway behind a building, and he would violently and brutally put a gun to the head rape them, sodomize them, assault them. Uh, and this guy was a monster. He was, he was big and he was strong. Yeah. So um, we ended up apprehending him. Later on, I testified at that trial and uh, he was sentenced to like uh, something like 300 years in jail. You know, he's, wow. still, he's still in jail now. And this was pretty much um, pre, 
pre-DNA, because I think uh, they didn't really start getting DNA hits till, I don't know, I think it was maybe in the, into the, in the 90s. I could be wrong. No, it was, you're absolutely right. And uh, I was thinking the other day, I was, you know, I was getting ready to, uh, I know I was going to be speaking to you. And I was thinking, I wonder if they ever ran those uh, uh, semen samples from the other victims, you know, as the DNA became apparent. But they, they probably they used, to call, they used to call them Vitulo kits, remember? Yes, yes. And yes. then they changed them to sex crime evidence collection kit yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So, uh, so that was so, like in six months' time, actually less, five months' time, made two major cases being connected by gun collars that we made in the 7-1 precinct. So it reaffirmed everything I learned from listening to my brother and his friends and these uh, detectives talking at 7-1, how evidence from one crime scene is going to match evidence from another crime scene. And it's up to us and as being investigators to put it together. And build you know, I think that, um, I think they should really spend more time in the academy or even maybe more in-service training on uh, crime scene, uh, crime scene response and, and the collection of evidence. We don't do it because we have a crime scene unit, but you also, you need to understand what possibly could be evidence and how to find it, where it is. I remember there was a, um, a sex crime detective from uh, Manhattan. His name was John Savino. And he was a first grader. He, at one time, he was the most experienced sex crime detective in the nation. It's with 16 years. He wrote a book called The Rape Investigation Handbook with this other guy, Brent Turvey. But he was so good at crime scenes. He would always go the extra step, go on the escape route and see maybe the perp touched the fence. Maybe he dropped something in, the, you know. And lo and behold, he would find evidence through doing that. And I was like, you know, that's great, John. You should teach this because not everyone does that. And not everyone knows to do that. You know, like they'll say, uh, burglar, check the windowsill, check the fire escape, you know, check the window. And all of those things where, like what you talk about, know the evidence, know where it is, know how to collect it. You're absolutely right. I remember one case we were investigating a homicide and uh, it was a female victim inside of an apartment. And there were a pair of glasses, uh, her glasses on the, on the floor. They were actually under the bed. So during the struggle, I guess they got kicked under the bed. So we, we observed the glasses and I asked crime scene. And crime scene, when, when they respond, they're trained investigators in crime scenes. They are looking for you to, to give advice or to give you know, suggestions on where to recover the evidence uh, for, for the reasons that you just said. So um, I asked them, I said, maybe we can take uh, latent prints off the eyeglasses. You know, how do we know the perp didn't take them off her, that they came off, you know, after he assaulted her, you know. They didn't, they didn't recover any evidence off the eyeglasses, but it's, it's, it's uh, attempts like that that can possibly strengthen your case. Right. And, and I remember crime scene in emergency services, you know, they respond to these crime scenes and they want to help. You know, I had them kneeling, kneeling through mud looking right, for ballistics right. for me, you know, I mean, uh, they want to do the job, you know, and uh, uh, their experience and their assistance is invaluable in putting cases together. And you know, now... Chief, there was this funny case that happened in France and the stick-up team goes into a jewelry store and they demand this woman open the safe and she's like refusing to open the safe and they're telling her they're going to shoot her if she doesn't. So 
She believes them and opens the safe. They take all the jewelry out. Before the guy leaves, he kisses her on the cheek. Big mistake, right? They cheek and they get his DNA. They solve the case. That's like brilliant, right? That's what I was just going to say. Uh, you know, you know, like the last 16 years of my career, I worked in the JTTF after 9-11. And that, that was invaluable experience another way. But I never really um, learned to work in these cases how DNA technology has changed because it's really crime scene, like homicides and all that. And uh, uh, with the Vetrano case uh, out in Howard Beach, which is like the neighboring precinct for me, the young girl was jogging. The uh, Vetrano, yes. The Vetrano case, yeah. yeah. And uh, they were able to solve that case by transfer skin, skin cells on her neck and on her cell phone. Which I mean, the technology is incredible. Well, I think it was the Russell Timoshenko homicide. Um, they had actually swabbed the trigger guard and found out who the shooter was. Wow. And then there was chicken inside the car. And they collected DNA off the chicken oh. and found out who some of the other perps were. I mean, that's like a technology, like, wow, you know? Yeah, I wish I had that when I was in, you know, in, in my investigative days, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and then now we could go even further with genealogical testing. Yes. Where it's yeah. like, you know, it's familial DNA and all of that yeah. stuff. And without uh, going so deeply into science, basically it checks out the, the family of perps and it matches DNA that's close to the perp. And they could figure out, wait, this matches really closely. It must be someone in their family. I, I saw a documentary on, on how they do that. And it, it's fascinating. Uh, they build family trees on, yes. on, on, on boards. Uh, and it's all from like public websites. Yeah. You know, uh, Ancestry.com or whatever, you know. Exactly. So, uh, but you know what? A good investigator, a good cop is going to use every tool available. And uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know something? It's. One of the things, too, and it seems like a lot of times the um, civil libertarians try to take away uh, some of our tools. Like, for example, now facial recognition is helping identify a lot of people. And they're trying in some states, they're trying to take that away from the police saying, oh, it's not fair. It's this. It's biased toward this racial group. And the um, Zarnayev brothers from the Boston Marathon bombing. Yep. identified through facial recognition and comparing it against social media. I mean, that that's an emergency situation. Those guys were going to kill more people, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's invaluable, you know. Uh, I, I think there were some problems with, with the, uh, but they're going to they're gonna iron them out with the facial recognition, like maybe making some uh, uh, inaccurate uh, connections. But, you know, the, the technology is going to be corrected and perfected and uh, it's going to be there, you know. So, well, some of the biggest things that we had in our police career was that, especially with homicides, video and cell phone technology almost always came into play somewhere down the road, right? Video, obviously, you know, could set, give you a timestamp of when things happened. Video could convict someone or clear someone, you know, clear someone an alibi. No, he was over here. He couldn't. That's right. Better, you know, and cell phone technology i mean having a cell phone is a walking talking gps tool that's right a lot of people don't realize that yeah you know uh like i got a planned crime a planned hit these guys are smart enough to leave their, their, their cell phones on and maybe give it to somebody else to have them drive in other parts of the city right. and do the crime but if uh, uh, if a 
sporadic event happens where uh, it just happens because of something develops, these perps are going to have the cell phone on them. It's going to put them right on the scene. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's incredible. So those are the things now. I know... I always liked that book. I, I know you probably read it, Practical Homicide Investigation by Vernon Gebreth. I worked with uh, his son. It, it's yeah. a good book, but he, it's yeah. not updated to today. It doesn't talk right. about cell phone technology. Right. doesn't talk too much about DNA or that type of stuff, you know? You know, uh, there's, there's a lot of information uh, on the internet, you know, that you can learn. Uh, a lot of documentaries you can learn, you know, these true crime documentaries, right. forensic files. Uh, I, I, that's all I do is I, I watch them all day long, you know, um, and I'm always learning. You, you learn different uh, bits of information from different cases, you know. We, we, we always have cases that were never solved and, and, and troubled us, you know. I, I still think about a lot of them, you know, and uh, sometimes I'll see uh, what they tried, like in Ohio or in Utah. Sure. Uh, and I say, you know, I never thought about that, you know, and uh, so you, you, it's always good to keep your eyes open, your ears open and, and learn what you can from other people. Well, you know, the technology, I mean, there's something also now where they can um, they can pull up almost every electronic device in an area at a certain time. So if the perp drove through this area at this time, they could pull up, see if his cell phone was, I mean, it's incredible. And I'm sure that's, there's some legal snafus with that. You, you know, you probably need a search warrant and all of that yeah. stuff because what's the expectation of privacy? But all these technological advances for an investigator is uh, is incredible, you know. And I mean, even uh, I've been I've been out nine years. We used to use uh, you know YouTube, Facebook. You know, these guys would shoot someone and pay, post it the next day on their Facebook. Bragging about, bragging about, yeah. And is also using photos. Like this guy was never arrested, but he's all over Facebook. We right. can use this photo for an identification, you know. So you have to be, you have to be really educated in these technologies, or you'll be lost behind. You know, you see, years ago there was a detective in Midtown North that didn't have a driver's license. You know, that was from another era. I didn't think they had to have a driver's license when they came on the car. That's uh, funny. Came yeah. on the job, but now, I mean, look, you have to have. Obviously, they're, they're teaching you in the academy with computer technology. You know, you have yes. to use that tablet. You have to be converse with, you know, uh, Microsoft Word, all these different programs. If you're not, you, you know, you're lost. You are totally lost. It, you know what? And uh, I'm sorry I missed that generation. You know, me too. I think we're, I think we're close to the same age. And uh, I watched my daughter on, on, on the computer when I, it's unbelievable. You know, these, they awesome. learn, you know, when she was four years old, she was learning how to use a computer, you know? Right. Uh, I remember when we first uh, got them in a detective squad. I was like, you know, I'm used to a typewriter. You know, uh, now I'm, 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 I was waiting for the computer to blow up. You know, I, I was afraid to use it. We know? were talking about that the other day, how this detective in the 19th was using a typewriter with carbons. And people came in and they go, <laughs> you're using a typewriter? And he goes, yeah. They go, are you kidding me? He goes, hey, the police department doesn't have the money for computers. They were, and this was in the 19th. They were like, we'll buy them. How many do you need? You know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a detective in the homicide squad, Ike Johnson great guy and uh because he's in a homicide squad he would bounce to different squads to investigate homicides right so he he had a portable uh typewriter in his trunk of his car <laughs> so 
So when it was time to t- type up his interviews or whatever he did that day, he goes down to the car, come up, and you know, because we, I think we were all intimidated by the computers, you know. Well, the other thing was that he was talking about some of the typewriters. People would take the ribbon and that ball home with them because people yes, steal them. Yes, else you know, yeah, 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 yeah. it was it was so unbelievable. You know, I had yeah. a guy on uh, Real Crime Stories the other night, Michael Cilio, who's the helicopter pilot, and he was showing how they had six state of the art helicopters. And I was like, you know, in the same year in the two three squad, we had no cars, and you got six fucking helicopters. <laughs> We're walking to shootings and murders. You know, that actually happened, and then the big boss came in and got us three cars. But for like at least a month or two, we had no cars. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, when you you, know, you tell people that, they go, "No, nah, that's not." I tell you, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Captain yeah. Eunuch, you probably know her, Captain Laurie Eunuch. She was. I know Laurie and her husband, Captain. Yeah, yeah. And her husband was a chief. She was our captain. I was captain. You believe this shit? She was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. "I want you to walk, but I want you to make a do- you know document in the command log that you're walking." Like, all right, you know. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's how we wound up, you know, get getting some cause. But you you remember that shit, you know. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you a, a, a funny story similar. When I was in the 75 squad, uh, you know, cars were always at a shortage and crime was always, you know, rampant. So uh, we had like 50 shots fired in front of a, a, a public school. Thank God nobody got hit, but the kids were in school when it happened. Gang members. So I had to get out there. I had a to- 1982 Toyota Cell at the time. And, uh, <laughs> I, had a, I had a Toyota Cell. It was a stick. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Two A little rice burner. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, me and three other detectives get into my to cell. You know, they're all big guys like me. And uh, we, we go over there and, you know, we're doing our job. We're canvassing. We're looking for evidence. We're doing what And now I see at the corner of the, of the uh, crime scene, there's two vans, not vans, uh, nice uh, Jeeps, like, you know, nice vehicles. And I see two detectives I know, one from uh, the Intelligence Bureau. And the other one from, um, well, they were both from the intelligence division. And uh, they had these brand new vehicles and they had their laptops on the, the, the hook of the car and they had their cell phones. Cell phones were new then. Right, right, right. And I'm, I'm, I'm driving four monsters in my 1982 Toyota. <laughs> but you know what? All the special money, they didn't, it's probably still the same way today. They didn't really give it to the squads. They gave no, it was the, the specialty the units, you know. Units, yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, the squads, they're the grunts. They're the guys that are working, you know, the hardest. Yeah, they're uh, working their ass. The numbered exactly. squads are the ones that, uh, well, I, I think it was Bratton. When he came back, he did like a, a study on the department and he went to the detective and he said, What's, what do you guys need the most? And he said, uh, Commissioner, we're using our own cell phones. Yeah, yeah. We, don't, we should have department cell phones. We're using our own damn cell phones. When we need a picture from another department, they got to fax it to us. It's fucking crazy. We should have email addresses. You know, like we were like still in the caves hitting two rocks yeah. together to make a spark. Exactly. And other departments had way ran past us in technology. And at that time, we, we had none of the technology. I mean, I used to use my email address to get a photo array from another department in another state, you know, that because exactly. And that's not a good thing to do because if it goes to trial, you know, now you're your email address is exposed to the defense. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. So it's, it was sort of like, but you know, something we wanted to, it's just like, I was a rip sergeant 
we never had enough money to do the lineups. We ran out of money after like the first week and we're like, why don't they just give us more money? You know? I my wife thought I, my Bill, my wife thought I had a gumad. <laughs> because I would go I would I would go to the ATM and that was new then and take out fifty dollars or you know, a hundred dollars whatever to do lineups. Yeah. At two o'clock in the morning. Right, right, right. Go, she thought I was out boozing. I'm, I'm, I'm paying for my lineups, you know. <laughs> yeah. no, you know People don't believe that shit, right? You was yeah. like, we have no money. How are we going to do a lineup? And they always look yeah. at the sergeant. Well, Sarge, you're going to come. <laughs> well, what do I look like, an ATM? Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly, exactly. But it was crazy. Yeah. But, 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 you know, something, if you didn't do the lineup, no one made any overtime. So, you know, you figure you get it back when the check came in. But Yeah, know. but you had to fight for it, you know. Yeah, and yeah. busy places like the 2-3, we'd run out of lineup money in the first week. It was ridiculous. Yes. You know, yeah, 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 crazy. So let's let's move on from this. These are, I mean, I'm sure our audience will find all of these stories fascinating and hopefully funny too. Mm-hmm.